Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancers Show. Today, I'm hosting. So my name is Petra Manos, and with us today, we have Jim Huffman. Hey, how are you doing? And we've got Joel Schobert. Hey, everybody, this is Joel. And we're going to be chatting with Jim about some scenarios he had recently with um, the coronavirus hitting and then his agency going backwards pretty crazy for a while, but then recovering. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. So I'm actually pretty pumped on this topic because I ran into the same situation. And if you'd been following the podcast, you would have actually heard an episode lately where I talked about losing all of my hotel clients overnight and all the massage parlors and the party planners and everyone overnight. So um, we're actually, we've got a few parallels this week. And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation between the two of us of, and, and Joel as well, obviously, in, in terms of um, how to recover after a coronavirus hit or some similar topic. So, Jim, how about you share your story about exactly what happened to you when, when coronavirus hit your business and a little bit of background yeah. on, on your business in general? Yeah, for sure. I can kind of give some context, like leading up to, you know, when COVID hit a lot of businesses. So um, we have a, a, a growth marketing agency called Growth Hit, and we specialize in one thing, and that's conversion rate optimization. So all the, the expensive traffic that you send to the website, we work to design, optimize, run experiments on those funnels to hopefully get more conversions out of them. And so um, just in the past 12 months, we really started really getting our processes down and we were starting to grow pretty nicely. We were hiring people and we were very bullish on 2020. We thought it was going to be like a banner year and it was just not in the way we wanted. And so we were actually about to make two pretty big hires going into March. And then, you know, the, the rug got pulled out from under us and like our clientele, we have a lot of e-commerce clients, a lot on Shopify, um, a lot that are maybe not essential products, um, maybe nice to have some like high-end fashion brands. And, and a lot of our clients are also venture-backed. And so it's just a recipe for disaster whenever this hits because like a lot of people are experiencing, like when this hits and companies are losing income, so quickly go into their P&L and be like, okay, where can I cut costs? And if you're a consultant, if you're an agency or freelancer, unfortunately, you're going to be gone before employees and some other people. So within 48 hours, we kind of called them email bombs where we would get that email from a client like, hey, we got to pause or hey, we've got to like cancel working together. And it was just rapid fire. And so it, it's so interesting because like we're in such an offensive position. We're looking to hire and make all these moves and then quickly we're put on our heels and we're just like, wow, when, when is this going to stop? And when it was all said and done, because we were, you know, at a seven figures um, um, uh, as far as annual recurring revenue. And then that got cut in half under like half a million. And so we're just trying to regroup and just understand like what's going on and is there more to come? And so that, that's what happened to us in March. Um, and so the, the good thing is I, we didn't make those hires. It's unfortunate because we really like those candidates, but it also meant that we were overextended to start. And so when we lost all these clients, it's not like I had to make any big layoffs because we were already understaffed. So it essentially made me like, okay, I don't have to make any big cuts, but the clock is ticking to close new business and to make sure we keep our existing business. So is that helpful? Just giving kind of the context. <laughs> I'm just nodding as I go along because I'm drawing so many parallels here. My last three months has just been exhausting. 
<laughs> because I mean, I'm, I'm not in the same size agency as yourself. My, my business is mostly me with, with the help of some assistants, but um, just the closing new business has been crazy. I've just been on zoom all the time meeting yeah, people, right? but yeah. yeah. But, um, so how, how did you go with it? I mean, did you manage to bring on new business or did you bring back some of your existing business? How, what transpired yeah. next? Yeah. So we like, so right away we're like doing the math, like, okay, what's our burn? What's our income? Like, what's the runway? Cause like as any business owner, you're just like, okay, how long do I have until we go down to zero and I have to get a real job, which I never want to have to do. Right. So it's like, well, what does that look like? And so as far as getting new business, the, the first thought was let's create more than we consume. Cause everyone was kind of looking around, what do you do? And it's like, let us be those people people are going to, to make decisions. So we started looking historically, like what businesses came out of downturns, what moves did they make? Where were they, aggressive where were they conservative and then the other thing was you know before we were looking at channels that scaled you know what's repeatable and scalable to get new leads but we kind of ignored that because the name of the game for us was what can we do in the next 30 to 45 days so we did a lot of non-scalable tactics where we're doing a lot of outreach to do webinars to do virtual lunch and learns uh, we went through our entire pipeline and we're trying to essentially put them into segments of whose industries are actually doing well right now, whose are not. And the ones that are doing well, what's a custom piece of content we can do for them. And then we actually got lucky in that two of our leads were in the online education space. So almost all of our leads dried up, but there were two that all of a sudden went from being an outbound company to an inbound company. It's like, oh my gosh, we have all this demand. We don't know what to do with this traffic. Will you help us with CRO? So that was just luck that we had those two uh, uh, client or leads in the pipeline. But really, um, the thing that I think has helped us the most are these non-scalable tactics. And I'll kind of call it ABM, like account-based marketing, where like we're a small agency. If we close five clients, that is significant for us. So if you kind of flip the funnel on its head, you're like, who are those ideal five prospects that are doing well right now. And so if you can get in front of them as a thought leader, if you can get in front of them with the right context, you might get their attention, be able to get on a call with them. So we started identifying those categories, specific industries within Shopify. We started doing pre ads to them for about two weeks, just putting thought leadership content that we made in front of them. And then we would do cold outreach or try and get connected through somebody we know to do a free audit or to build a free ROI model. Um, and that's, that's kind of a game of numbers, but we're actually fortunate to close two clients from, from that strategy. Um, so, so yeah. yeah so I, I think a really ABM similar strategy actually. Yeah. I, I used a yeah. really similar strategy and um, I managed to close 10 new clients. So um, it's just been, that's amazing. Well, it's just been crazy because I lost 25 clients overnight out of um, 26. <laughs> I had, I had, no, that's not true. I had two clients left and one of those clients was ending their business. So yeah, I had two clients left, lost all the oh rest and then picked up uh, 10 new clients and um, I doubled my rates. I just decided bringing on new clients. I'm going to start charging a higher amount because <laughs> I was can we really talk about before. that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's funny because we were looking at lowering our rates. Um, I love how you did the complete opposite because we're like, in this new environment, do we need a new offering that fits to this mm -hmm. person? I think it does with those industries going down, but the industries that were going up, we didn't have to cut rates and we we're actually able to, to charge a little bit more. Did you change your offering or just kind of keep it the same? No, it's just that I see what had happened was, um, I, I had this kind of precarious situation. It was like a house of cards really, but I had a really low margin client that um, they were like a, a group of hotels. And so, uh, so I specialize in e-commerce as well, but I, I, I ended up working with these hotels, which are kind of semi e-commerce. And um, it, there was like a, a 
a head group, I guess, and then uh, a whole lot of hotels affiliated with the one group. So um, it ended up being a lot of time to implement all of their work, but the um, it was quite low margin. So I ended up finding that I was at capacity all the time and I was having trouble bringing on new clients. And then on a per hotel basis, my rates were pretty low. But as a group, like it was great. It was a great client. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still hoping to to work with them again. But um, but it was making it, I was at capacity all the time and I was, it was making it hard for me to bring on new clients. So then when um, all the hotels like lost their business overnight, obviously they didn't want to have marketing. So that all went at once. And then it just so happened that I had been working with um, some some other categories. I, I had a, uh, I've got a good friend who runs a massage business. And so he had referred me to a whole lot of other massage businesses. So I just happened to have a whole lot of those, especially since um, with the analytics, I can do a lot of booking integrations. So I ended up with some of those. And then um, the rest of my business are all e-commerce, but they weren't all with me on Google ads. A lot of them were with me on the uh, analytics CRO type, type side of things. So, which we've got parallels there too, but, um, yeah, so, so essentially because I had lost that large block, I was now working on an account by account basis. And, um, I thought, well, I'm just going to charge an appropriate fee. And cause I had been struggling with this for a little while. What I had found was because I've got the analytics and the ads, um, all as one service, I found that if I lumped everything in together, I was always overextending myself. So what I started doing was I started looking at my proposals and splitting it into multiple different services. So even if I was just selling Google ads, I'd say, all right, well, um, Google ads could involve display or it could involve search or it could involve shopping or it could involve all three. And then there's the analytics side. So do they want, um, do they need analytics integrations setting up? Do they need tag manager? Do they need reporting? And I was literally like listing everything out. I was doing very detailed proposals. So I was spending ages writing my proposals, very kind of one-on-one, like hardly any boilerplate. And, um, and then I was itemizing all the different things and increasing the price in order for them to go to a lower price, they would have to remove something from the proposal. So that's the way I ended up doing it. And it worked really well. The other thing that I did was I put a, I gave them a couple of different pricing options because I've been finding everyone's payment plans. So what I did was I split all of the analytics into a payment plan, even though I do that one up front, I just split it all into a payment plan. If they get an ads service, and then I, with the ads, I put in an upfront fee if they go with a month to month. And if they went with a six month term, then I'd waive the fee. And I made the fee fairly significant. So although to be honest, that's the, it was realistic. It wasn't like I put in an unrealistic figure, but that was a deterrent. So everyone signed up with a six month term that's really smart locking them in for six months. Cause we've been playing around something for three months, but um, I especially like with what's going on right now, it's like that predictable revenue is so important. So the fact that you're locking that in is, is huge. Um, I, I have a question. Do you see that you're stickier as a, a consultant or agency or a freelancer when people commit to more services? Because we find that if we can do CRO plus either email automation or social ads, that our retention is, is quite strong. Is that something you try and bake into it? Because you also mentioned that it also can um, make the scope a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's been a huge improvement actually because previously I'd tried to go with a really niche strategy of just doing the analytics. So I actually started out basically trying to be a CRO agency myself. Now I started out doing the, the analytics. So I was specializing in tag manager and Google analytics and, and integrations. And I quickly found that the agencies who had a um, recurring service model would 
bring me in for a, like a quick job and then they'd go back to retaining the client relationship. But then they'd be trying to push me down on price because they saw it as just a little extra thing that they, they could only afford half of their retainer or something for that one month and then never use it again. So that wasn't working for me. I was ending up with hundreds of clients, but all really small jobs and it was exhausting. So what I decided to do was I decided to specialize in Google ads and then I would use the analytics as an adjunct service. And it's actually been a lot better because um, I'm still doing as much analytics as ever, but it's with my own clients. So I've got more of uh, control about what we're actually doing. I'm not taking orders from someone so I can suggest what needs to be done. And then because I've built up the client relationship, we're actually able to then go on and use that analytics in a way that's more helpful. Whereas previously I'd set it up and then I didn't really know how it was being used. So I couldn't, um, I, I, I couldn't easily get feedback as to whether it was effective for them or not. So I'm definitely finding that's an improvement. And then it's just a case of, well, we don't need to sell all the services up front. We can, by splitting it up into individual services, but they know that we specialize in these other things. We can start with some services and then later we can add things in. Yeah. And that's so smart too, because like doing the Google ads and then you also have the analytics, like the analytics is kind of your superpower. And that's also your point of differentiation on what makes you really strong at that. I, I, I would imagine. Um, the, and the thing about like Google ads and like we think of it with email and, and social ads is that's something they're kind of always going to need help with. Whereas CRO sometimes can be a nice to have and not a must have. So if we lock in one of those, um, hopefully it makes us a, a little bit stickier. Um, very interesting. Yeah. So, sorry, I didn't mean to end up hogging the conversation there, but so, uh, so you brought on, you brought on another two clients or have you, was there some other strategies that helped you to bring on new clients? Yeah. So we brought on like five in total. Um, and so, and it, we actually also doubled our Google ad spend, um, as far as going after industries in terms that, that we thought would still be working. Cause we saw that CPMs were actually cost for impressions were coming down, even though conversions were also coming down, but we still wanted to be top of mind. So, um, got one through our, our paid Google ad strategy, um, two just that were already in the pipeline. And then our ABM strategy, um, is what brought in kind of, kind of the other two. Um, but really it was also like, so that's kind of like the results. But the other thing that we did as a team was we just started increasing our frequency of communication. Cause I think when like any leader or company or person's going through a hard time, you kind of, at least me naturally, I kind of like go inward, like, Oh, I have to like craft a solution myself and take this on. I was like, I'm going to do the opposite. There's people significantly smarter than me on the team. Let me open this up, get their feedback. I also have like an executive coach and people that I kind of call mentors. And I was very transparent and honest with them. Like, here's my numbers. Here's what's happening. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. Please poke holes at this idea. And for me, it was a really good exercise just to make, anytime you have to articulate what you're going to do, it makes you get a little bit tighter with it. And to hear people's perspective, they were actually completely different, helped me reassure what I wanted to do or rethink what I was going to do. And I also think it accelerated how fast I moved um, j just by talking um, in a lot of small iterations with people. That's really cool. Yeah. I wish that I had a coach during that. I actually, I was with a coach last year, but I couldn't keep it going. It was going to cost more than I was bringing in really. I just, I just couldn't keep it going. And then this year I was planning to bring one on, but I just didn't get an opportunity with all this COVID situation. But I, I was talking through things with my team and I also found that to be helpful because you don't want to just go off on your own little rant. And then it turns out that, you know, what you're doing isn't effective because yeah, like you, I just went head down, bum up and it's like, right, <laughs> client acquisition <Yeah>. time. 
Yeah. But yeah, I, I also noticed that CPMs had come down. So I did an episode uh, a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about using um, Google Display for content marketing. And it's because at the moment I noticed that the cost on display is significantly lower at the moment. So personally, I came up with, it was going to be a hundred, but we got up to about 80 and then sort of, we just brought on new clients and the onboarding can be a bit timey, but uh, we've got 80 tips, Google ads tips where we had answered questions that had turned up in, um, I did a, a search on SEM rush and it just had a whole lot of questions that people were asking on our topic. And so we answered all those questions and we've just been displaying them through Google ads display and the number of people that have been coming to our website, but it's not just traffic. I've been getting returning visitors. And then what I found was that when I started turning up in more places, I had people that knew me well going, Oh my goodness, I'm seeing your face all over the place. I'm just seeing you everywhere. <laughs> no, not everyone's clicking on it. One of the things that's great about display is the fact that not everyone actually clicks on it, but they still do see you. So you're still top of mind. And we do a lot of remarketing. I ended up getting so many referrals just because everybody knew that I was doing Google ads because I was answering these questions and I was using responsive display. So it's got text as well as the images. So I'm able to put in the question itself in the ad and then people know, Oh, well, if I want to answer that question, this is the person that can help me answer it. So I think that ended up being a big difference. I just, as soon as I started putting all those ads out on display, I just started getting so many referrals. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So that that's really interesting because it's also like, it might have also helped that like during this time, as people are looking for answers, they're also looking for people to get advice from, whether that's tactical advice or even like mental model advice on how to think through things. And so one thing that we saw work pretty well was, so Social Fulcrum did a really good job of every week they're like, here's what, and Social Fulcrum is like a social media agency. They basically did a, a, a data report every week during COVID saying, here's the impact we're seeing and how it's impacting our clients and really became a thought leader in the space for how things are trending. And so as I, I saw that content coming through, it was super inspiring. It's like, okay, what proprietary data do we have or what unique angle do we have to put ourselves out there with what's going on and how we should be approaching it. And we, do, we don't have the, the clients at that scale, so we couldn't like aggregate the data. So we looked at historical data and like case studies on what other companies had done and what worked for them. And then for us, rather than like doing a big data set, we did kind of examples of, you know, here's how we're approaching growth with clients. And when we, we kept the names, um, anonymous, but like we talked about from an ad perspective positioning where, you know, if you're still trying to sell right now, here's ways to think about doing it. So we talked about, you know, don't position this as like an aspirational thing, make it a must have, make it essential play up, you know, that you're running out of stock. If for the U S clients, if you ship from the U S makes that a benefit, highlight that that you're not shipping from overseas where th there could be issues. And also like educating people on the utility and how to use a product in a different way during these times, especially with like, like some fashion brands working from home, pushing their athleisure in the new work from home wardrobe or something very basic like that. Um, 
and so as we put out these examples and whatnot and started publishing on our blog and email newsletter and LinkedIn, um, I, I think that helped kind of to, to your point, like be top of mind when people are trying to get advice for, for what's going on. Like we have had, we try and do essentially a thunderclap with our content when we publish a piece, we put it on the social networks and then we have a community on Slack or we kind of ask everybody to go out there and like it and share it ideally within the same 24 hours. So we, we can get it trending a little bit and, th and then we'll do a little bit of a, a boost behind it. Um, but again, we, we want to do it with that content that you hopefully is adding value with like the, those examples we, we put out there. How about you, Joel? Have you found that you had, you said that you had a few clients pause work while things were hitting. Did, did you have a recovery mechanism or did things pick back up again? You know, first of all, my model's so different. So instead of having lots of smaller clients, I tend to have a couple big, very long-term clients just because of the nature of doing kind of longer-term development work. But yes, two of my clients are very small startups and um, they were in the issue of not even being sure whether they would survive or not. And one of them sells these really cool art tables where a robot arm drags around a, a steel marble on a bed of sand and makes these almost like spirograph patterns. And oh then uh, they manufacture it from scratch. And then when it's done, it starts over and erases by going in a big spiral and then does another pattern. And so they named it Sisyphus because, you know, I was pushing the sand, I was pushing the rock up the hill and then it gets erased and starts over. So it turns out that um, that product is kind of a luxury item. Um, and you guys were talking about this, that things that people could cut, they would. But this seemed to be a luxury item that maybe appeals to people, people with a little bit higher income range. And so what they found is their orders were going just great and fine. And so they were one of the ones that put things on pause until they could evaluate. And um, another one of my clients just disappeared. However, uh, I have two other clients that some long-term projects were going on that they really needed to finish and they actually wanted to rush them. And one is a heating and air conditioning company. Well, that's more like critical service. There's no reason they're really gonna slow down that much. And the other one was a legal referral site and oh my goodness, there's so many lawsuits just related to the to the um, COVID-19. Uh, one of my friends was telling me he's at a bigger company and they've got construction projects and they shut those down. And because of the way the law works, all of these contractors that had their contract terms violated, they have to file a lawsuit as quickly as possible because if the company they're suing fails, then the order that they came in the door is the order they would be paid out until all the money was gone. So the number of uh, lawsuits triggered by this, this kind of shutdown thing was enormous. So of course that site's doing fantastic. And so I ended up being so busy. I've had no time to think about what might come afterwards or any marketing I might do for after. It's just literally been hanging on trying to get the work done that these two clients need done. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So certainly not everyone's in the dumps or anything by any stretch of imagination. No, and I'm kind of finding that at least along my sample of people in my social circle is people seem to have no work or an overwhelming amount of work unless they were in some full-time situation where just this kind of stayed the same people who, you know, a lot of people got cut from their jobs and then other people are in jobs that the kind of jobs like, like you were talking about, Jim, we're putting education online or something like that. Some of those people that do anything like that just went through the roof with being busy. Mm. You know, one of the things you were talking about, I found really interesting. So when you hear people talk about doing their sales funnel and setting it up, so you've got a way to start getting candidates in the door and identifying them and then moving them through the funnel to be a more and more likely prospect. Really, what everybody talks about is wanting it to be as automated as possible so you can have a big effect and then get the numbers and they'll shrink and you get what you want at the other end. I thought this was really interesting that you said you were kind of in like this unique survival mode and you had to like pick through your funnel and see what was in there and pick a few good prospects in a good uh, niche 
where their their finances were going to continue to do well. And then you talked about doing pre-ads for two weeks before you actually cold called. So that's interesting to me. It's like, I would think like you'd find the good candidates. It's like, I'm going to call and try to get a meeting and talk to them right away. What was the strategy related to doing the pre-ads for two weeks? And, and what does that really, tell us what that really means, the pre-ads? And why did you come up with a strategy and do it that way? Yeah, um, I think like backing into it, like I think you all have that that feeling like you do a sales call or you meet a prospect and you do a call with them and you have the two cohorts, the ones that go extremely well and become a client. They want to become a client before they even hang up. And then you have the ones that don't go well, right? <laughs> or they, they just, not that they don't go well, they just, it doesn't work out. And as we looked at those two um, cohorts, the thing that we really saw was if people view us as a thought leader, if they've seen us talk, do a webinar, read a blog post, read a book, like it's not even competitive. They're bought in on us and being a part of the team. Those go extremely well. So before we can even get someone to that call phase, we want to be viewed as a thought leader and not as someone that's doing cold outreach. So ideally the source is not even through email or I'm sorry, not even through ads and it's not through cold outreach. It would be like a referral we have some partnerships with venture capital firms or they saw still webinar talk, but obviously that's hard to scale. We can't do that. So mm. the thought is before we do cold outreach, if we can get ads to them, when I say ads, it's really putting content in front of them that hopefully makes them see us as thought leaders. Hopefully if we're doing that, whenever they see a cold email come through, they can associate like, Oh, Jim, he's the guy that talked about the growth markers playbook or Oh, growth that they're the ones that did that case study. That was cool. That's the goal as opposed to being like, who the heck is this person that's blasting me? Because cold emails are, are annoying. So that was kind of how we backed into it with like, what what has a high close rate and what doesn't? And then once we know it's being a thought leader, it's like with those personas for us, it's either e-commerce companies on Shopify or it's SaaS companies or online education, trying to make content that's specific to them. Um, again, it's not like we have some content factory where we're whipping this up every week. We're repurposing some of the same content that has that slant. Um, and as far as how we deliver that, so, you know, we can put the, their emails into like the Facebook, we can put them into Google to LinkedIn and try and get in front of them, but you're kind of limited on the reach. And so if you can connect with them on LinkedIn and do promoted content, that helps. So, um, but yeah, that was kind of the thought process in doing those pre-ads before we do cold outreach. Oh, that's really cool. So in a way, I'm, it's interesting because in a way it's similar, somewhat similar to what Petra was talking about as well. I guess it might be related to this idea of priming. So somebody kind of has an idea exactly. in their head that you may be an expert in this. And as Petra said, showing some answers to these FAQ kind of questions about things. It's like then when they see you, it's like, oh, I know this person in a way. Priming is the exact word. I wish I would have said that. Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's so interesting. Because the other thing, I, I've been reading the book Scaling Up, and it talks about what word do you want to own. So when people think of that word, you're top of mind. So like an obvious one is like safety and Volvo in the car, you know. And so from the service side, what is that? Um, and so that's something, and by the way, I don't have the answer to it with ours. Like we're, we're, we have ones in mind that we want to do, but we don't own any of them. But that's something we're trying to spend a lot of time on. Because that way, when people are like, oh, crap, I need help with CRO, we want them to think of us. Oh, I need a growth team. We want them to think of us. Um, and so that's another thing. Whenever we're doing the priming or the pre-ads, trying to be very intentional with like speaking the language with their industry, but what do they associate associate us as um, as far as helping them? Yeah, you're not going to go for one of the really expensive ones, like the color brown, like UPS. <laughs> <laughs> They're next. They're next. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. You know, um, this is, this is a, a little off topic, but kind of a precursor to what you did. So I find it fascinating that you moved from um, high finance to the world of the, the whole techie world. You know, everybody thinks high finance, boy, that's where it's at in terms of like big salaries and impacting the world. What was your, what kind of prep or research did you do? Did you pick this out of like a love for it or did you kind of look at the, uh, what it could do for you financially? How did you, how did you prepare yourself 
for making a move, like a, a career change, something that big? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was working uh, in uh, at an investment bank doing M and A mergers and acquisitions, and I was in, in Dallas, Texas at the time. And um, you know, I was a finance major out of school, and I don't know about you all, but like, whenever you have this major, like, I literally thought there were three options for job with a finance degree. It's like, okay, I can be an investment banker, I can be a consultant, or I can go like try and do accounting or something. I literally did not know what the options were. And so I, I, I did investment banking. And one thing that I found was like, I would be in these meetings. And again, I was an analyst. I wasn't talking. I was in the meetings taking notes. And I was the one that would make a financial model. And there'd be all these people that were supposedly the smartest people in the room. You have the person with the law degree. You have the person with an MBA. But the person I was the most impressed with was the founder. And a lot of times this founder hadn't graduated college. They didn't go to college, but they owned the room. And I was obsessed with their story because I, I was there at a pretty fun stage where they're about to sell their company. And I get to see their whole story from a finance perspective and just hear them talk about it. And so as I'm doing this, it didn't make me want to do more M&A deals. It made me want to be on that side of the table of the person that's building something. And this was, you know, 2008. And so this is when startups and technology were pretty interesting. So I'm like, okay, how do I jump to that side? What is that industry or vertical that I want to do? And so I, I went to a media company that was, that was in New York. And I went from doing, you know, finance stuff, making models to writing email newsletters about new bars and restaurants that were opening up. So it made absolutely no sense. But it was eye-opening because as a non-technical person, I'm doing this marketing stuff and I was employed like number 28 and went to like 225. And the amount of how you can accelerate your knowledge by being a part of those companies that are going fast, it's, it's just amazing. And so like anybody that goes to a startup, you become this, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, getting exposed to a lot of stuff. And we launched an e-commerce arm and they're like, okay, we don't know anything about e-commerce. Jim, you're head of e-commerce, go figure it out. And so for me, that was kind of trial by fire, but it was a great opportunity to learn on somebody else's dime. And um, we were able to go out to a seven figure business. And then I was able to get connected with some uh, venture capital firms and like help mentor some of their companies. And that eventually led to me, like I was working at a startup and then at nights and weekends, I'm like mentoring, consulting on the side. And then I had to be like, Hey, maybe I should decide if I want to do this full time so I can actually sleep at night and like be a good husband to my wife and talk to her. So, um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the story to, to making that, that, that jump, I guess, from finance to, to kind of marketing and, and digital. What a ride. So you actually became a business owner to reduce your hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But, you, but one of the things really interesting in this too, is like, you're kind of living what you want to live in a way, just the fact of what brought us here today, this story about how the COVID crisis slammed your books to half of what they were. You had to figure out how to survive and figure out how to pluck through that funnel and get what you needed in the short term. All of this is literally the kind of stories that founders tell when they get to the point they're ready to, to sell or merge their companies. Yeah, if we can keep going up and to the right, that's that's the goal. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. It's like I, I feel like the, the skills you get, whether you're like a, a freelancer or an agency owner, um, it's like because it's this hybrid of you need to understand you know, the finance and you understand your business strategy, but also just the client side, the management side. It's like this skill that's like in hospitality that that's like so interesting that if, if you can perfect it, there's something really, really to it where there's a skill set that can allow you to do a lot of stuff, which is good and bad, right? Um, I think one of the things I've had the biggest struggle with is, you know, the good thing about owning your own business is ideally you control your your own time, right? You're your own boss, which is a lie because you're, a, you know, you're working for all these other clients, your employees, you want to keep them happy. So they stay with you. But if you can create a team that is really good at what they do, and if you can get to that level where you trust them to execute, then you get a little bit of that freedom 
um, to kind of hopefully, you know, control your hours more and do what you want. And that was the other thing that was hard for me that as COVID hit, I was finally able to almost fire myself from a lot of the work. And then COVID hits, I was like, oh no, I don't want to have to lay off people. One, because they're amazing. and I really like my team. But two, I don't want to have to start doing all the work again. I like being on the strategic <laughs> side. And so that, that was why it was equally painful for, for me at least. I found that um, to be true as well, because the last thing I wanted to do was let go the people that were helping to execute the work. <laughs> Uh, with the account management side of things that you're describing there, you're saying it's akin to hospitality. There's a lot of work involved in that, um, <laughs> that, that piece of things. So trying to do that and then get all the work done at the same time, that just seems like, oh, my goodness, that's not going to be happening. And, <laughs> yeah, as in, you, you don't want to be having – you don't want to be having situations where – you're promising the world and then not delivering because you're too busy making sales. And let's face it, when you have your income drop like this, your focus is on sales, not on execution. You need to make the sales. So you're busy um, making sales and then things aren't getting done. You don't want to be having to apologize to your clients. So I had, I had recently brought on a new VA when that happened and I inquired about what it would cost to let it go in terms of like there was a break fee, but it, I wasn't really planning to do that. I, I kept her busy. One of the reasons why I went with the strategy of writing all the content was that I now had a full-time person because I, I had hired her full-time with nothing to do. So I'm like, well, I need to make use of her time. Otherwise I'm paying her salary and, and not my own and there's no benefit to that. So I just got her writing the answers to all these questions. And that was good. That bought me a bit of time because I was able to get on with the selling and she just had this ongoing task that she could do. She didn't have to really ask me too many questions. She could just get on with it and, and write all of these answers. So that worked out really well. But for sure, I think that it would be a bad move to let go all the people that you'd trained and like, you know, jump ship too early because then you're in a situation where you now need to train new people. You're putting more work on your own plate and you can't really separate yourself from your business. It's just going to drive you insane. Yeah. Yeah. And that just makes the hole that you go in that much deeper, just on another level. Cause you're exactly right. It's so hard to be the CMO of the company and the CEO of the person that's like executing and delivering and doing all the, the, the client correspondence. And as we, as I was kind of talking to like mentors around that, you know, the thing that came up was, okay, what are the cash reserves? how much do we want to dip into that to keep the team intact as we look at this kind of worst case scenario. And as I was kind of like running that stress test and thinking through what I want to do, it actually was a good exercise to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to go as deep as I need to because I feel confident in the team and that will come out of this and that this will work out. And it was kind of an interesting exercise for me because it made me realize it wasn't necessarily about money. It was about like the lifestyle that you can create when you have your own company and your own business. And that was more precious to me than anything. Um, so yeah, that it, it was a very interesting like mental exercise to go through whenever COVID hits and it makes you think about all these things in, in extreme ways. Did they encourage you to actually set a dollar limit? Like at this point, we're done. We actually have to make cuts or wasn't it that hard and fast really? Yeah, I, I was thinking of it like worst case scenario. It's like, what's my burn per month? And then worst case scenario, we lose everybody, which I, I didn't think was going to happen. But I want to do that. Like how many, how many months we had. And so with those scenarios, I was like, okay, when is like the line, what's the line in the sand where I have to make that decision where I could still give a good severance. And I, I got pretty comfortable with not like necessarily how low I could go, but like, what is the worst case scenario? Like you have this idea of 
not goal setting, but fear setting. I think Tim Ferriss talks about in the four hour work week, like go through like your worst fear. What does that look like? And what I kind of boiled it down to was worst case scenario, we run out of money, I fire everybody. And then I have to like find one or two clients. And I was like, you know what? I actually feel comfortable. I could do that. And I could like live off one or two. And once I was kind of comfortable with that, um, it actually removed a lot of stress on what I was doing. And it allowed me to play offense a little bit more because at first you're terrified. Like, Oh my gosh, we're losing so much money. What's going on. But once I kind of went through those scenarios, I was like, you know what? It's crazy right now. It's not good, but I'm actually okay with some of these scenarios. So now that I've put that aside, I don't have to fo- focus my energy on worrying. Let me focus my energy on playing offense and finding creative ways to get in front of the right clients to hopefully partner with them. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know about you guys, but it was a lot of like, like laying in bed at night, running, like doing math in my head, like, wait a minute, like, when do I run out of money? What's this look like? So, yeah. I, I think I live with too. a calculator. Yeah. <laughs> I think I live with a calculator next to my bed. Well, actually, it's called my phone. I get out right. my phone, I'm like, adding up all the numbers, subtracting all the numbers. <laughs> oh, that's what it leaves me with. And then the next day, I'm do- it's like a OCD thing where I'm doing it all the time, but I haven't been doing that so much lately. So I must be on a good wicket. <laughs> and Jim, I love that idea of setting your fear limits. The, uh, the idea of the worst case scenario, can I survive it? I mean, that, that is fantastic. There, there was a uh, Persian philosopher, Seneca, and he said once every year for two weeks, live in sackcloth and eat only the most difficult to chew foods and then ask yourself, is this the thing I fear will happen to me if I take a risk in life? That's right. Yes. Uh, that's so good. I, I completely forgot about that. You better hope that you haven't got false teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like COVID made us do the technology version of that, right? Um, right. <laughs> That's great. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. You know, one of the other things you were talking about as you are talking about this transition you made that I found just fascinating, and people who haven't made these changes might not realize this, is... It's so hard to understand the difference between being in a full-time company and being pigeonholed to one little thing versus either being an entrepreneur or being in a startup. The amount of responsibility you can get in either of those two cases, including startups, is so amazing. And people wonder, why would you do it? Why would you want to, you know, especially startups, some of them are notorious for making you work long hours in that. But the amount of energy you get when people really trust you with a lot of responsibility and you succeed at it, and then you get given a little more, it can be, uh, it, it can be a very, very positive experience for a lot of people. And on the flip side of it, that getting pigeonholed in big companies can be so extreme. I know I was talking to a potential employer back when I was deciding whether I was going to go back to consulting and freelance or not. And I met them, I was checking out a React conference and I was really knowledgeable about Ruby on Rails and all the latest stuff. And I met this guy and he's like, we're looking to expand. We need another Ruby on Rails programmer and it's remote, which I really like that kind of work. And then he went back and talked to his boss. He said, well, now where did you meet him? It's like, yeah, I met him at a React conference. And the attitude was like, oh, this monkey knows how to do two things. We don't want that. We just want one thing. <laughs> and the level of pigeonhole, the legend of pigeonholing was just like amazing. So I think people may not be aware of that difference between being full-time somewhere and being in a startup and freelance and how much energy for some people that can bring you. I know it sounds like you really, you really were energized by that experience. Yeah, that, that's such a good point, too, because like getting pigeonholed, I mean, there, there is something to be said for being a specialist to come in and, and wow people with that one thing. But on, on the flip side, it's also, you know, what have you not gotten exposure to that would open your eyes to one and be like, wow, I want to try that or two, even make your mind think about problems a different way that can actually make your core skill set even better. Right. Cause that's one thing that I've loved, like from working with engineers to seeing how their mind works to work with designers, have to think through creative problems, think through like number problems. It, it, it makes you really work those muscles. 
you know, to not necessarily be an expert at something, but at least know how to speak that language or know how to approach those problems. And so like, and it also helps you realize what are you good at? What are you not good at? What are you great at? So as you get into a role, if you want to have your own company, you can kind of know where your blind spots are, your weak spots are. So you can fill those gaps with partners or with people to help, right? If you're the visionary or if you're the operator where you can, where you can work. And the other thing that I think a lot of people like going to a big company, becoming a specialist, you know, that, that can be good. You can maybe make more money that way. But it's also a lot of people at a certain phase of your career, you, you need to really understand like, what is the goal right now? Is it to like to learn or is it to earn? And I think when you're early on, I lean on the side of, of learning where it's how, who is the smartest person I know, or I can get connected to, or I can work side by side with them and just be a sponge. Cause whenever I talk to people that are starting out, I'm like, who's the smartest person, you know, or like who is the smartest person you're connected to and like go beg them for a job. Cause the, the doors and opportunities that are going to come from that will be better than finding some other job that's going to pay you six grand more or whatever. But, but obviously that flips, right. Eventually like you can only like learn for, I mean, you want to learn forever, but then there comes a point where, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go out and start making money. And so I think for a lot of people, when they flip that switch from startup, jack of all trades, doing a lot of things, um, working in an agency, doing a lot of things, then it can flip when they want to go off and try and do their own thing to get into that, that earn mode. Cause that's something that, it was kind of hard early on when I went from finance to startups and I saw friends still working in finance or whatever, get these huge bonuses and go away with some, you know, some, some, some good cash. So I'm like, Oh, I have this thing called uh, equity that hopefully one day I'll be able to cash that in. Right. But like right now I'm, it's the, the salary's not looking good. Um, sweat equity at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like but being comfortable with like, actually, though, it's like being a part of a company that was an employee 20, it grows to 150 people. All of a sudden, you're like running a division in six months. It's like, that's the stuff that can really set the foundation for down the road doing something really cool and really special. Even for those of us who are, you know, running one person teams or we just have assistants. The idea of specialization really changes when you're self-employed because you go from being a specialist in your craft, but when you're an employee, you're kind of limited by the range of clients that your boss wants to bring on. And quite often you end up with quite large corporate clients as well. So you might be working on the same account all the time. When you go out on your own and you're, you're hanging out your tile, I guess, and saying that you specialize in something, just the amount of variety that turns up at your door can be really interesting because you actually become in, it's interesting because you become a specialist in a truer sense of the world word because you're thrown out to learn off so many situations you actually really go deep into certain things but at the same time you don't have time to execute it all yourself because you have so many other things that you're doing so it's almost like you're a part-time specialist <laughs> so you're you're specializing but then you you have to go and do all these other things at the same time and where I think that specialization comes about is when your business grows the assets that can enable other people to do work to the same quality as yourself. So the more of those assets that you build up as a business, um, like in terms of you know, basically a procedure library, the more your specialization has taken a form other than just yourself. And I think that becomes really exciting as you're growing your business. Yeah, for for you've kind of hit the nail on the head for people that are looking to go from like just a one person shop to, you know, not working on the in the business but on the business. 
like the, those SOPs, when you like really put down the things that you know really well that can train others, it, it allows you to scale and it just opens the doors to kind of free yourself to focus on other things, whether it's like, you know, closing more business, you know, being a CEO or even just working on other things that your, your um, agency or consultancy would want to start better at. Um, but yeah, for us, we, we just in the past 12 months, we really went all in on exactly what you're talking about the SOPs and it, it, it was a game changer for us because we, we did this exercise that we're using toggle. It's like, where are our hours really going? And we did that for a couple of weeks and they were like, Oh my gosh, that is depressing. How much time we spend in email, managing clients, doing reporting and all these kind of $1 and $10 tasks that senior people should not be working on. We need to be focusing on the thousand, ten thousand dollar task. And um, it, it was a painful exercise, but it was the one that made us really step the, put the foot on the gas with doing the SOPs and outsourcing the grunt work that, that we shouldn't be doing. Yeah, definitely. That's something that I started doing when I first started this business. And so I've been growing really slowly just because I invested so much of my time into the SOPs and, and going slowly with it. But I really feel that it builds momentum quickly. The more, the more you can trust and delegate, the faster you can grow in a way. So I think that was actually, if we, if we cycle right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, we were talking about how essentially we lost a lot of clients and we were able to bring new clients on. If you don't have really robust procedures, bringing on a new client can actually be a bit of a nightmare because there's so many moving parts at the beginning of an engagement. You've got all of the onboarding. People have to give you access to things. You have to develop that relationship. You need to kind of set up reports and you need to set up a way to stay in touch with them and any emails or all of that kind of thing. There's just all this stuff going on at the beginning. And then you actually have to deliver the work, of course. And there's usually a lot of upfront work that's involved in, in working with any client just because things are a mess and you need to start tidying it up. So if you don't have a process for how you start, then you can quickly find yourself bogged down whenever you get a new client and you can't bring many clients on at once. So this was, this was actually what got me to really refine my onboarding process as one of my first things because I was finding that every time I brought on a client, there'd be this, all right, what do we do with the contracts? What are we doing now? I had to think it all through. Whereas now I've got a virtual assistant who can run through all of the admin onboarding. And then I've got a technical assistant that can run through all the technical onboarding. And by the time the client comes to me, like basically I'm doing the sales part of it. By the time the client comes to me, they're ready to go. I know that we've got access to everything. I know what the problems are. I know where things are good and I know exactly what to target first. So I don't have to worry about all of those bits and bobs that take up all the time in, in between. Um, and even to the point where I templated out some introductory emails and things that my team could send out so that they knew some of the technical things that maybe were in my head that they didn't know. So all of that's a bit of a training piece in you know, how to seamlessly go from the initial sale through to getting ready to actually do the work. Yeah. I, and well, the thing that, especially with uh, businesses where it's about recurring revenue, you know, how do you ensure the lifetime of, a, of an engagement? If it's a, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever you want. But we found that like, a good first 30 days can make or break the overall relationship with the client. And so th that's exactly where we focus as well with our SOPs starting out was how do we have magic moments in those first 30 days to one, set the tone, you know, earn their trust and, you know, kind of create a, a long partnership. And so for us, we were kind of going through like one of these magic moments with clients. And for us, it's, you know, you're, you're exactly right before any kickoff meeting, we need access to everything. And we actually have questions they have to answer. We, we won't start until we have that because there's nothing worse than like doing the kickoff call and then like, okay, now let's get access. It, it just really 
put the put the wrench in everything. The other thing is like if we can stand up a, an experiment in the first seven days that can wow them with how fast we move. And then we have two specific research deliverables that we deliver those um, in the first 30 days that'll also wow them. And then we want to have a big win within the first 30 days. So if we hit those check marks, um, then we know it's going to be a really good project and a really good engagement. And then we had to figure out, okay, what are the things we can outsource? What are the things we have to do? And it's like 60, 70% we can kind of, create SOPs for then the other thing like the core stuff we have to do but um yeah I totally because there's nothing worse than it like you could be really good at closing all the business you want but if you have a leaky bucket or a bad process where they turn after three months or whatever then it's um yeah you're on the hamster wheel that gets a little exhausting Alrighty, so I'm thinking we we should move into picks shortly, but is there anything else that you want to finish up with? I know we, we ended up changing topic a little bit compared with what we were talking about at the beginning, but is there any final thoughts that you have before we move into picks? Um, no, not on mine. It's been really fun for me just to compare notes and know that I'm not crazy and alone that you and I were going through something very, very <laughs> similar. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no worries at all. And it's interesting how the conversation changed anyway. We don't want to necessarily stick on the one topic. So and that's yeah. all good. All righty. Well, who wants to go first with picks? Do you have any picks today, Joel? Yes, I do. Um, I'm uh, enrolled in an online uh, bass teaching course, Scott's Bass Lessons. And then there's somebody who made this great post to from a jazz musician about how to get great timing if you're a musician. And he talks about how timing is, oh, you can use your analytic mind, you need to kind of train it, but in the end, it kind of ends up being a bit of a feel thing. And you just got to practice enough at it, 16th notes and different rests and stuff until you kind of get the feel for what it is you're trying to do. And at that point, you've really absorbed it. So I'm going to put a link into this guy's talk on how he developed great timing as a jazz musician. That sounds great. How about yourself, Jim? Do you have any picks this week? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited and nervous to give a pick because I've heard you guys do this before. So I know that the pressure is on. Um, so my pick is it's not something that's necessarily new, but I think the way you think about it should be new. So I'm a big fan of masterclass. It's um, like online uh, masterclasses from, you know, the top chefs, from artists, from business leaders. But I think like it's actually kind of expensive. It's like I don't know, 150, 180 bucks. But if you think of it like Netflix or Hulu, it's the same price. And one thing that my wife and I have found that like during COVID, it's really fun to like throw one on. Like we watched like Thomas Keller, How to Make an Omelet. The production value is so good. It's like you're watching a movie. You actually learn something good. I, I just watched the one uh, Chris Voss teaches the art of negotiation. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator. And like the insights you get from it, like mirroring and labeling is really cool. And um, he gave you good practices to use on your kid or your toddler. Because I have a, a three-year-old who out negotiates me. So I'm pretty pumped to use some of these tactics. Yeah, that sounds good on the three-year-olds, actually. Actually, I was just imagining <laughs> as you were saying that, can you imagine if you had, uh, like they say to document when it comes to your content marketing rather than, um, you know, write it all up ages after the um, time and, and make it too polished. I'm just imagining <laughs> content marketing, a interrogation service. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. <laughs> as going and, and then and now I say this to him and he should respond like this. <laughs> That'd be a good read. <laughs> well, um, my pick this week, I've actually got a couple. So one is a humorous one. I've been following Chris Mann's videos uh, on YouTube since he's been singing these coronavirus parodies. I love them. I find them really funny. And there's one that he's doing at the moment called um, I've Had the Hold of My Life, which is from Dirty Dancing. And it's, um, it's basically about people being unemployed and it's hilarious. So I'm re really enjoying that one. My whole family are singing to it because the song is so catchy. Um, so I've shared the link to that one. And then I've also got He's a so well produced too. 
Oh, I love it. It's just so funny. Yeah, and his, his production quality is great. So you've seen that particular one, have you, Joel? No, I've uh, only seen the My Corona, his very first one. I think it might have been his first Corona one he did. And it was just, it was so <laughs> catchy and so well done. He's a great yeah. singer too. Yeah, well, so watch that. I've had the hold of my life. That's really good. Um, and the, I was going to share another one as well, which is more of a techie one. Um, I found this well, not really that techie, but I found a, um, a little application called Auto Screen Capture. I'm calling it techie because the interface is terrible, actually. <laughs> it's like opening up a really old style Unix type application. But um, what it does is it you can set all these different settings and how often it takes a screen capture. And um, I've got it set up now to take a capture of my screen every five minutes or so. I've, I've asked my team permission for whether I can do the same with theirs. And the reason why I'm doing this is sometimes when like I've found that the content marketing has been really effective lately at bringing in clients and I want to do more of it, but sometimes I, it's not so much that I forget what we've done. It's just that I don't remember to write about it until afterwards. And by that stage, it feels like reinventing the wheel. So by having all these screen captures come through, um, my thoughts was that I could create some content around different things that I'd done during the day. And it's just really short pieces and it would be um, pulling out some screen captures from my library of things that had been automatically collected. And I could um, write up a little description of what I was doing and why and how it benefited the client. And it would just be a really quick snippet of something. So I'm experimenting with that at the moment. I've just got this auto screen software. So I'm going to put in a link to that for anyone else that's interested in doing something similar. And I'll give you feedback later on how that strategy goes. That sounds great. And, and Jim, if people want to reach you or get in contact with your company, what are the different ways that they can reach out to you? Yeah, for sure. So I'm uh, our website's growthhead.com. Um, and my email is just Jim at growthhead.com. And then I'm also fairly active on Twitter at Jim W Huffman. Um, so yeah, hit, hit me up. I, I post some marketing content and the occasional baby pic. So yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. I think you need to have that blend of business and personal. Otherwise it just gets to work related. Boring, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's been great having you today. Thank you so much for coming on and no doubt we'll hear from you again at some point soon. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Alrighty. Great to have, have you on Jim. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.